Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. And Eric, it is our job, of course, to cover people punching each other in the face. Um, so it is with a sense of reluctant obligation. I report on an incident that happened at, uh, of all places, uh, Sesame Place, the Sesame Street theme park in Pennsylvania. Yes. Uh, last week, a 17-year-old employee approached a maskless couple and advised them that wearing masks was park policy because, you know, we're in the middle of a goddamn pandemic, you <laughs> selfish, childish asswipes. <laughs> Um, and, and the response of the couple, actually, there was a, a, an extra wrinkle that I hadn't appreciated. They actually waited, saw the kid later on at a ride in the park, at which point, having stewed upon the fact, the man in the couple went up to the 17-year-old and punched him in the face with such force that the kid required surgery. And then, of course, the brave assailants ran away. <laughs> yes. This assault was brought to you by the letters M, A, G, and A, and the number 45. And some wag wrote on Twitter, uh, I hope the kid hires a lawyer and is able to sue the guy for, ah, ah, 8 million, ah, 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 9 million, ah, 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 10 million dollars, ah, 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 ah. Well, so, something tells me the couple He's in not question, yeah, they probably don't have multiple millions of dollars. I could be wrong, uh, but... Uh, you see, Karen, I know Sesame Place. Uh, I live 10 minutes from Sesame Place. Yeah. I took my kids to Sesame Place several times when they were in the age demo. And uh, I was the cool dad who could do Elmo and Cookie Monster impressions. <laughs> okay, I, I, I was never the cool the dad. dad. I, was, the dad. I was the embarrassing dad who once spoke to Elmo in Elmo voice at Sesame nice. Place. Yes. Um, but my point here is... I know the Sesame Place clientele, and the park is not exactly swimming with multimillionaires. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Bucks County, PA, uh, that's where I live. It's a very purple county, and uh, I've seen the school district message boards where a handful of parents in the vocal minority are threatening to sue if their kids are required to wear masks in school. So... I guess what I'm saying is that very little about this Sesame Place violence <laughs> surprises me. Uh, I just hope there's a trial and a guy in a Big Bird mascot suit testifies right. as a witness. That'd be a nice visual. Yes, yes. For a moment there, I thought you were saying, you know, I know Sesame Place. I've been to Sesame Place. And I thought you were going to go all Lloyd Benson on me. <laughs> you, sir, are no Sesame Place. Yeah, I don't know how I could quite uh, tell someone that they are not Sesame Place. Uh, yeah, no, wouldn't have worked. That's what I was ready for. But anyway, yeah. Murica, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> there it Murica. is. There it is. Indeed. Uh, coming up on this week's episode, we will be joined by veteran boxing journalist Keith Eideck of Boxing Scene. Uh, we will review the upset from the matchroom card in Tulsa, uh, Jessica McCaskill defeating Cecilia Brakus. Uh, and we will look at the latest news about upcoming bouts and preview some uh, that are just around the corner. But we kick off closer to home with the second Showtime boxing card of the pandemic era. From the Mohegan Sun in Uncasville, Connecticut, uh, the action began with heavyweight Otto Valin scoring a TKO stoppage in the fifth round when opponent Travis Kaufman suffered an apparent recurrence of a shoulder injury. Uh, it continued in the lightweight division with a decision of extreme bogosity. I think that's the word. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, Raleigh Romero was somehow given a unanimous decision win over Jackson Marinez. Uh, we will talk about both of those bouts shortly. But first, let's look at the main event, where super middleweight, uh, sort of, David Benavides <laughs> remained undefeated with an utterly dominant win over Roma Alexis Angulo, completely outworking and outlanding him and forcing a corner stoppage at the end of the 10th round. Uh, Eric, we talked during our preview about uh, Benavides's defense, uh, how it had been steadily tightening up. Um, well, Angulo just couldn't come even close to breaching it on Saturday night. He landed just 10 of 104 jabs and 41 of 296 power shots for a total connect percentage of just 13 over the 10 rounds percent, that is. Um, Benavides, in contrast, landed 71 of 312 jabs and an astonishing 219 of 391 power shots. That's 56% of his power shots. Eric, what makes Benavidez so effective and what made him so effective on Saturday night that he was able to utterly dominate a solid opponent? 
Well, interesting phrasing, calling him a, a solid opponent, because that, that's what he was. He was a solid opponent, and that's about the best I can say for Angulo. Yeah. And his solidness just played right into Benavidez's yeah. hands. He was just the right mix of sturdy and mostly unthreatening, uh, at least at this level of the game, to allow Benavidez to show off all his skills and gifts without having to compensate much for what was potentially coming back at him. That's how he manages to land 56% of his power shots, which is indeed a spectacular connect rate. Um, you know, we discussed before the fight how high Breadman is on Benavidez, how high Abner Mares is on him, and I said... Well, I'm impressed, but I'm a little less sold than those guys. And this fight, it's interesting. I'm still not totally sold, but I will definitely agree after watching this that the ceiling is extremely high. Mm. If you told me David Benavidez will, in a couple of years, crack the pound-for-pound top five, I'd say, yeah, I could see Mm. that. Um, He has, to use a Roy Jonesism, perhaps our favorite Roy Jonesism, (laughs) pretty full toolbox. Um, His combination punching with uppercuts and body shots and the punches coming in rapid succession, six in a row, you don't know what's coming next. That's magnificent to watch. He throws a left hook from a distance that, because of his length, only he can throw that left hook safely from that far away, and it's accurate and powerful. He's a hell of a talent. And yet, I still have a lot of questions because Angulo was a tough guy and nothing more. He, mm. he fought behind a high guard, didn't throw enough punches, and, I mean, Benavinez didn't have to concern himself with keeping his hands up at all. He fought almost the whole fight with his hands down. I want to see him in next with a guy who at least forces him to be defensively sound rather than allowing him to just be 100% offensive mind. I'm impressed with his talent, but for me, there are still some question marks coming out of this. Yeah. And speaking of the Benavidez question marks, despite the convincing win, he left the Mohegan Sun without his alphabet belt. The second time he has been stripped of that trinket. The first time was because he tested positive for cocaine. This time was because he missed the 168-pound super middleweight limit by three pounds and made no attempt to lose the extra weight. So, Kieran, as good as Benavidez seems to be, is he in danger of tripping himself up outside the ring? Yeah, you know, it's funny, isn't it? You know, you talked about uh, Abner Morris being being high on Benavidez. But, of course, the one thing he said last week that he didn't like about Benavidez is his physique. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, and he did. You know, he entered the ring. He looked especially – he looked a little flabby. He has the – Moobs of a 1980 heavyweight, <laughs> really, yeah. uh, in, a, in a 21st century super middleweight body. Um, you know, it's funny. I was thinking at first, my first thought was, you know, maybe he deserved to be cut some slack. You know, I was paying attention to his interview with Brian Custer and I'm like, you know, did he deserve to be cut some slack about missing weight, given the conditions, given the need to be on lockdown in the Mohegan Sun? But then, as Abner said, every other fighter was in that same situation, and the others didn't miss weight. Um, yeah, Benavidez said it was the first time he'd missed weight. But if that is their way of making weight, if they are, as he's expressed during the interview with, with, with Brian, that they're so reliant on fight week saunas, for example, to, mm-hmm. to get themselves down to weight. I mean, that doesn't make them, you wouldn't make them unique by any means in that respect. A lot of fighters have to resort to all kinds of different things to, to get down to make weight during fight week. But the fact that, A, that is seemingly, from what he said, their go-to means of making weight, um, uh, and B, that they didn't have their act together enough to anticipate that they would have to adapt uh, that's not a good sign. That doesn't augur well. And, and, and you know, it'd be easy to write it off. Um, we're not for the fact that, as you mentioned, he's already been stripped of that belt for cocaine use. And you could say, look, the two are unconnected. They're both isolated incidents with no greater meaning. And if he were 28 and he had a full career behind him and these were incidents that have been separated by six or seven years, you'd think, yeah, okay, fair enough. Stuff happens. But at 23, you start to wonder a little bit. Mm-hmm. He's, he's starting to feel a little bit Javante Davis-esque. Mm-hmm. You know, for a while, Javante, all the focus was on his weight. And then there were some these other issues, the, the video of him and so forth. And you kind of think, hmm, was, the, was the, struggle, uh, the struggles with weight symptomatic of other issues? You sort of start to wonder a little bit given that he is just 23. And again, you have to cut the kid's slack. He's just 23. I was doing very stupid things at 23. Um, but, but when you're a professional athlete, that's your peak. That's right. when you've got to be at your best. So 
I don't know. I, I, I hope he has it together. He didn't sound... I mean, he gave a cursory account of, of sort of regret um, and, and, and sort of personal responsibility in that interview. But he also kind of shrugged it off a little bit, like, hey, I couldn't go in the sauna every day. What am I supposed to do? Um, which isn't really... He, at no stage in his life was Bernard Hopkins using that as an excuse, right. for example, right? So I don't know. I hope he has it together. I hope he is sufficiently dedicated because, yeah, to follow on from what you said, potentially, what a fighter. I mean, you normally you expect a good fighter to either throw a lot of punches or be a very accurate puncher or be a power puncher. It's extraordinarily rare to have somebody who's all three all at the same time. Um, it feels as if, yeah, like you said, talk about his high ceiling. It feels as if his potential is almost limitless, given the physical gifts that he has, mm -hmm. the size that he has, as well as the natural talent. But he has to be ready to give 110%, because if he's just relying on being the bigger or stronger guy, or the, the guy who's able to throw the most punches, uh, somebody else is going to come along at some stage who might not have quite the skills or quite the talent, but is going to have the dedication and the energy, uh, and he's going to end up losing his belt, not because he's stripped of it, but because he loses it in the ring. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the saying is three strikes and you're out, not two strikes and you're out, so it's not like one of those things where, okay, right. so he's had these two incidents, let's let's think about writing him off, but when you got two strikes on you, you choke up on the bat a little bit, you, yeah. you bear down, he's at that point where we need to be watching very carefully. It's a pattern is developing, even if they were two separate incidents yeah. and uh, you definitely don't want to see a, a third incident along these lines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the co-main event was not contrary to our preview last week, the heavyweight bout, uh, which opened the broadcast and we'll get to that shortly. It was in fact the lightweight contest between unbeaten's Rolly Romero and Jackson Mariñez. Uh, in our preview, I said, I thought that somebody with Mariñez's style would probably be the one to upend Romero. But I said, I didn't think it would be Mourinho specifically. You, on the other hand, went uh, all out and picked Mourinho to win, while acknowledging there was always the possibility that there'd be some bad judging in Romero's favor that would make it seem closer than it was. Um, technically and officially, I was right, at least about Mourinho not being the one to beat him. In reality, you were. Um, the scores after 12 rounds were 115, 113, 116, 112, and 118, 110. Uh, as you and I texted the fight, we both felt that either of those last two were fine scores if they'd been for Mourinho's. Right. But they were for Romero. Uh, I had the fight, as did you, even through eight, and then felt Mourinho swept the final four. And even though I gave Romero four of the first eight, there was always the sense... I think that Mourinho was winning the war. Um, I thought he outthought, he outboxed, he outmoved Romero all night. Romero, I thought, looked confused quite early on. Mm -hmm. He was landing uh, the occasional punch that was keeping him in it and allowing him to maybe sneak some of those close rounds. He did not win, in my estimation, more than four rounds. He certainly did not win 10 rounds. This was a terrible decision. Um... Did this so-called win expose Romero for the limited prospect that you in particular tapped him to be? Yeah, uh, I, I would say so. Um, now, let's note that he's only 24 years old. Yep. He was making a big leap here uh, in terms of quality of opposition and number of rounds. So there will presumably be some improvement. I would yep. fully expect that we will see a better version of Rally Romero in the near future. But he is very raw somewhat limited i will stand by my assessment that he's not a first tier prospect mm. uh and as you said i we had the same score of the fight 116 112 there were plenty of close rounds i think don trella's 115 113 score for romero was justifiable if you're right. swayed in close rounds by who's throwing more power punches if you're the kind of judge who doesn't value jabs a lot I think you could get to, to that kind of score, but let's call out Frank Lombardi, 118-110. That's unacceptable. That's every bit as bad as the judge who had Joe George up seven rounds to one over Marcos Escudero, and I'd say it's every bit as bad as another famous 118-110 score, Adelaide Bird's 118-110 in the first Canelo-Triple-G fight. Uh, now, because this fight was lower profile, 
Lombardi will receive less scorn, but he deserves just as much scorn. That score is awful. To give Marinez just two rounds out of 12 for that performance is disgraceful. Uh, I looked up Lombardi. He also had Golovkin beating Derevyanchenko by three points. Not a great scorecard in my view. I didn't go all the way through his box rec to see if there's a full-on pattern here, but this particular scorecard is just terrible. He should be made to explain it to an authority figure. Like the, the, the commission that hired him needs to follow up on this and, and not just let it slide. And yeah. I, I just think it's a real shame that Marina's boxed this well and gets his first loss for it. Uh, 77% of the people that Showtime polled on Twitter thought Marinez won. He outlanded Romero in power shots and jabs and out threw him too. You want to screw him with a draw? I could have lived with that. Um, mm. But he deserved better than any of those judges gave him. And uh, I am very unimpressed with the judging in the bubble so far. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's the, I was just stunned when they announced who the winner was after we heard those scores. It just yeah. didn't make sense. But all right, I'll take a deep inhale and exhale here and uh, move on to another fight that uh, has me less agitated. Uh, (laughs) Let's talk about the opener. Uh, Otto Valin finally got to fight beyond one round on Showtime (laughs) and have an actual result go into the record books. Uh, Once again, though, there was perhaps an element of anticlimax in that he scored a stoppage win when Travis Kaufman, who had recently had surgery on his left shoulder, appeared to tear or hyperextend that same shoulder when throwing a punch in the fifth round. Referee Mike Ortega, seeing Kaufman's hand dangle at his side and realizing he was a one-armed fighter, stepped in to stop the contest, which was the right move. Um, But we got to see almost five full rounds of Valin. That's an improvement. Uh, And I thought he was wholly impressive, uh, other than his decision to enter the ring to Puff Daddy's bastardization of every breath you take. That's an unforgivable (laughs) sin. Um, And speaking of every breath you take, uh, wow, the silence of the bubble setting turned Travis Kaufman's labored breathing into the soundtrack of this fight. Um, having you, you saw my Twitter, so you knew where that uh, where that line was going before I got there. But uh, all right, this has been uh, trivial observations with Raskin. Let's get some meaningful observations from Mulvaney. Yes, oh it, it was or try anyway. Uh, yeah, it was slightly anticlimactic for Valin, but was there any doubt he was on the way to scoring a stoppage anyway? mild doubt that it would have been a stoppage only because of, as we talked about last week, how tough Kaufman is, but he was probably a very high percentage on his way to a stoppage, but he was clearly on his way to a win. Mm -hmm. Uh, The only uncertainty uh, that I expressed in the preview was that Kaufman is a tough guy and he wasn't likely to wilt. But after those uh, fairly ugly couple of first rounds, you know, Valin had gotten his distance right. Uh, he'd gotten his, his timing right and he's in a rhythm. His punches were landing pretty cleanly and effectively. And, and he was scoring and then moving and resetting and scoring and moving. And even if Kaufman wasn't going to drop, there should have come a point in the not very distant future when either the corner or the referee would have had to, to step in for, for Kaufman's good there because Valin was just getting better and better, I thought, as the fight went on. Um, you know, and I think for 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 Lynn, you know, coming off the back of a of that strong effort against Tyson Fury, that I, you know, it's really under underlined the fact that what you were talking about last week that if he isn't a top five heavyweight, he's he's probably in that group just behind the very best. That mm-hmm. he's a, a legitimately very good heavyweight, um, and he's really pr- very solid technically. You know, this was finally after you know, way more than a year, really, of disappointment and delay and frustration and cancellation and, uh, you know, accidental headbutts. It was it was an opportunity to show what he had. And, and yeah, after those slightly ugly couple of rounds, he really did find his distance in his range. He was on his way to a clear win. Um, it's perhaps to his advantage that it ended early because sometimes no matter how good you are, when you're up against an opponent, like clearly a nice guy, Travis Kaufman, but also very limited the sooner it ends, the better for people's perceptions of of, of how you did. Um, right. So I think finally, after a lot of frustration, yeah, a little bit anticlimactic for him, but probably just what Otto Valin needed. And, uh, you know, like you said, he, he'll be able to go back to New York and get a little rest and then get back in, into training. And, and I think he showed that he belongs in, you know, those considerations for meaningful heavyweight fights. Yeah. 
Um, and, and we should note that uh, Kaufman announced his retirement after the fight. Uh, now, it's boxing, so uh, right. we, sh- we shall see about that. But but he, he didn't look like a fighter with a ton left to offer on this night. So yeah. it may indeed be the end for him. Uh, so let's go over the scoring in our picks contest. Uh, you were up by one point, 24-23. Uh, I tied it up momentarily with two points for picking Valin by KO, and you picked him by decision. That nodded us at 25-25. And I was counting my chickens at the yes. end of the romero Marinez <laughs> fight. But alas, the judges uh, put another asterisk on our competition. Uh, you got the right winner, and I did not officially. So one point for you there, making it 26-25 Mulvaney. And then the main event, you gained a point on me quite legitimately. Uh, in fact, you almost gained four almost. points on me. Yeah, you said Benavidez KO9. You were off by one round. Uh, so you got two points. I picked Benavidez by decision and got one point. So we will head into September with you leading 28-26 because you paid off the Mohican Sun judges. I hope you're happy with what you've done, Karen. If it's just a couple point swing at the end, I fully expect you to harp on that endlessly. <laughs> the the asterisks are, are firmly in place. Uh, whatever the margin of victory, if you win... Asterisks galore. That's right. That's right. All right. Look, we've had our say. Uh, now let's bring out a real journalist to talk some more about Saturday's fights and some of the other news around boxing. Uh, after many years cutting his teeth in the newspaper world, he is now a senior writer and a columnist for Boxing Scene, our very good friend, Keith Heideck. Keith, welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And a uh, real reporter is much better than I hear on Twitter oftentimes. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. nothing is more accurate than the Twitter commentary. Oh right? my God, jeez! You, you could be, you could hate Al Heyman, and you could <laughs> hate Bob Arum all in one story. You That's know, right. it's, it's amazing. As, as long as you hate Keith Eideck, uh, then, then right. you're on the right side of history. <laughs> I'm all good, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's when you see people actually hating Al Bernstein. That's when you realize oh, how yeah. screwed up the place yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. No one can hate Al Bernstein. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. No one is safe. That's for damn sure. Exactly. Right? Um, so, Keith, look, I know that you had hoped to be ringside for the card on Saturday, uh, headlined by David Benavides, but ultimately were unable to do so. So I want to get a sense from you about what you feel about when ringside media is likely to start being allowed to, uh, to fights now. Well, I had been given a pretty strong indication that it would have been last night. Initially, we thought we'd be able to cover the August 1st Showtime show up at Mohegan Sun and then they kind of changed course about a week, week and a half before. And they said, we'd like to use this as kind of a trial run, uh, work out all the kinks, make sure everything's okay, and then let a limited number of media into the August 15th show. So I was planning to drive up there on Wednesday night, uh, get my COVID test on Thursday morning, remain in quarantine for somewhere around 22 hours, I think it was, that uh, that, that was allotted for. And uh, then I would have been able to go to the weigh-in and cover the fights last night. I was told about, I believe it was Monday afternoon, late Monday afternoon, that they decided just to be uh, extra cautious that they were not going to allow media again. Um, so for me, you know, as I kind of want to get a feel for what it's like to, they're not calling it a bubble at Mohegan Sun, but in effect is, is uh, you know, similar to a bubble situation. I just kind of think that uh, moving forward, that's going to be the norm for us to some degree. And I just wanted to kind of get a feel for it before we get into like a big fight week, because you don't want to get into a big, like the Charlo pay-per-view is a good example. That's, you know, a bigger event and you don't want to go through your trial and error during that week when there's, there's always a lot to do, but there's even more to do, I think in that week and you'll be there for a longer amount of time. So I, I was told um, after we were informed that we could not come this week, that we would probably be able to go, to the Erickson Lubin Terrell Gaucher show on uh, September 19th. So I'm uh, planning to do that. And just for geographical purposes, I can drive to those shows to Mohegan Sun because I live in Northern New Jersey. So um, not having to get on a plane is, is a uh, nice benefit to that. So, um, but honestly, you know, if I'm being honest, <laughs> not driving six hours round trip and being in quarantine for 22 hours and being able to cover the fights almost not necessarily as well, but almost as well as if you were there in person was not the worst thing in the world. And I also understand that they're just, you know, they're just trying to be extra cautious, cautious, keep everyone safe, uh, which I completely understand. So uh, whenever they give us the okay to go cover the fights, uh, we'll, we'll go cover them. So, and because of the geography, like PBC is the one 
promoter that you've had these conversations with you haven't even bothered to talk to top rank about las vegas uh, no i have i have actually oh, okay you know, it's yeah you know top rank has two pretty interesting fights coming up as you guys know uh, this saturday joe smith yep. jr against uh, elider alvarez and then the following week uh jose ramirez and victor postal are finally going to fight or so they hope um I, I was considering going out just for both of those just more than anything to break up the monotony from of working yeah. from home for five or six straight months yeah. Uh, thought better of it just when there was a spike in cases in Las Vegas and have, if you don't have to get on a plane now, if you don't really have to, it's probably just best that you don't. Uh, so I thought better of that. Uh, but I have been in contact with them and, am planning, uh, assuming the Lomachenko Lopez fight happens on October 17th, I, I plan to be out there for that in the, uh, in the actual level. Right. Okay. All right. So d- despite what you were hoping to do as of a few days ago, uh, you ended up watching on TV like the rest of mm. us commoners. And uh, <laughs> it, in the main event last night, David Benavidez managed to send out some strongly conflicting signals. On the one hand, he dropped his title on the scales the second time mm. he's been stripped of his super middleweight belt. And he showed up in the ring looking pretty flabby for a super middleweight. At the same time, he was utterly dominant against a normally very solid and durable opponent in Romer Alexis Angulo. So where do you see Benavidez as standing now in a competitive 168-pound division? And I'll ask you the same question I asked Kieran earlier. Is he in danger of screwing up his career with his outside-the-ring issues? You know, guys, there are some obvious concerns there. He has to be the first boxer in, in the entire history of the sport to lose the same title twice without actually losing a fight. Uh, he's now tested positive for cocaine. Um, you know, he, he's taken responsibility both times, but you would just like to see these things, very different things, of course, not happen. Uh, you have to wonder what's going on in terms of discipline in his camp. Uh, Benavides is a very nice kid. I mean, I've always, you know, he's very likable. He's very respectful. Uh, but now this is twice in two years that he's lost this title without losing uh, it, it does beg some questions about what's going on in his camps. I mean, he, when I was, you know, I was covering the, the weigh-in the other day off of the computer, and when I heard uh, the announcer say that he was 170.8, I said, wait, what? Uh, you know, I couldn't believe what he was saying. So that's almost three pounds overweight. Right. Um, and, and just a couple of days before that, Benavides had said that he had no reason or there, there was nothing leading him to believe that he couldn't continue making 168 pounds. There was no reason for him to move up to 175. Now he's not going to come out and say two days before he's going to weigh in. Oh my God, I don't know how I'm going to get rid of <laughs> right. this weight, of course. But, but uh, he, he still thinks that he can make 168 if he goes about his diet differently. The one thing I will say, guys, is that this bubble experience was very different for all of these fighters. And I'm not making excuses for Benavidez, yeah. but not having a sauna available to you is, is important for fighters because a lot of them use the sauna however unhealthy it may be to shed those last few pounds as they lead up to the weigh-in. So he did not have a sauna available to him. Uh, They were only allowed to use the gym one hour per day per fighter. That's just the reality of the COVID-19 world we live in. So they better get used to those types of things because he just couldn't train the way in the buildup toward the weigh-in. He just couldn't train the way that he normally trains, but that's on him to know that going in. That when you're a professional and when there's this much at stake, particularly financially, it's up to you to to make sure that you have all those I's dotted and T's crossed. Yeah. yeah. And this, yeah. in terms of his performance in the ring uh, and where he fits now at at 168, like would you say he's the number one super middleweight in the world? If he's a super middleweight, is he the sort of the guy to beat in that division in your view, or is it kind of crowded at the top? Well, offensively, guys, he's a beast, as you well know. I mean, he's he's diverse he you know he throws punchers from various angles he's and he looks like he has a great chin I would like to see his chin tested a little bit against a bigger puncher but you know Anthony Durrell is, is an above average puncher he didn't do anything to him uh Angulo is is a pretty big puncher and while he didn't hit David Benavidez all that often last night uh he took those shots well and didn't seem to be impacted by any of those shots would I say he's the best super middleweight in the world Look, that depends, of course, on if Canelo Alvarez is fighting at 168 or 160. If, if Canelo, as you guys I'm sure would agree, if he's fighting at 68, he's the best super middleweight in the world. But I would like to see Benavidez fight Caleb Plant. I don't know how far away from that we are now because he gave up the title at the scale the other day. Much more attractive for Plant if it's a unification fight. More money for Benavidez, of course, if it is. But in a weird way, 
if Plant is willing to do it and he doesn't have to go back, meaning Benavidez does not have to go back and fight Avni Yildirim to win this title back, why couldn't Caleb Plant fight David Benavidez next? Mm. Does it really – I know it – Eric, I know it does not matter to you whether he has the WBC <laughs> title, the IBF, or, or any of the others. So um, so maybe it's a, a quicker path. Uh, you know, Ultimately, mm. it turns out to be a blessing in disguise, and it's a quicker path to plant Benavidez happen. Yeah. All right. Let's talk about the co-main. Um, <laughs> uh, look, obviously, the scoring was terrible. Jackson Mourinho's had a win stolen from him on Saturday night, and I think we all agree on that. Um, you know, Raleigh Romero was, I guess, the A-side in a sense going in, even though they're both prospects. He was the Floyd Mayweather guy. Um, but there were question marks going in about Romero, you know, about, you know, how he could cope against somebody who didn't fall when he hit him with one of his power punches, whether he could go more than six rounds yet, whether he had a plan B. Um, leaving aside the scoring a little bit, was Romero exposed a little bit last night or was he just taking too much of a leap at once? I think he was exposed to some degree, Karen, because he, you know, he did once, as you said, Mourinho's did not go down. He didn't know what to do. And he just kept repeating the same mistakes over and over again. And, you know, it always makes me laugh when a puncher comes into a post fight press conference and says, well, he was moving around and he wasn't standing (laughs) and engaged. Yeah, because that's how he can win the fight. I mean, it's called boxing, right? I mean, it's, it's always fascinating to me that they say that, but, uh, but Mourinho's deserved to win the fight. Clearly when I heard, you know, having written on deadline for as long as I have, I always have the background. Exactly. But last night I was like, you know, I'm not going to need this background. Right. And then I heard 118, 110. And I said, well, there's no way that anyone could have scored this fight. 118, 110 for Rolando Romero. Lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. And, And honestly, guys, I mean, Frank Lombardi's scorecard, might be the worst scorecard submitted. And, and this is a much lower profile fight than Canelo Triple G, but probably since Adelaide Bird scored that fight 118-110 for Canelo because that was a competitive fight. I thought Golovkin won, mm. but it was a 7-5 you know, kind of fight. If you had it even, well, it probably wasn't, but it's closer to what happened than when last night was absurd. I, I mean, Romero might have lost 10 rounds, not one. Yeah. I mean, I, I, thought I had a 117-111. You know, a swing round here and there, maybe he loses 116, 112. But to have him winning 10 rounds is an embarrassment. And I would want some answers if I'm the Mohegan Tribal Commission. I would want some answers from Frank Lombardi uh, about why he scored that fight the way that he did. You might not get any honest answers, but (laughs) someone should call him on the carpet and find out what was going through his mind when he scored that fight. Yeah. yeah, either great minds think alike or you were listening in when Kieran and I recorded the previous part of the podcast because I said the same thing about Adelaide Bird and that Canelo Triple G fight. Yeah, it's absolutely. the worst card since that one. Yeah. Um, so in the opener, uh, Otto Valin scored a fifth round stoppage against Travis Kaufman. An injury ended it, but Valin was winning handily. Coming on the back of a solid losing effort against Tyson Fury, that easily could have been a stoppage win with a different ref. Um, where do you rate Valine in the heavyweight division right now? Is he top 10 and should he be in the running for another title shot? He's probably in the back end of the top 10, I would say. I mean, he's a legitimate heavyweight contender. I thought that after he fought Tyson Fury because I didn't think that that was a fluke, but of course he hadn't fought since then. But I think last night, guys, was more about Travis Kaufman than it was about Otto Valine because mm-hmm. – Travis Kaufman told me a couple of weeks ago that even though he had uh, repaired the torn labrum in his left shoulder, that it was still giving him problems in camp. And while he felt better going into this fight than he did when he fought Luis Ortiz, that it still wasn't quite right. So I wasn't stunned when that was the reason that the fight ended in the fifth round. But as I'm sure you guys saw, he was well on his way to getting stopped in that fight. Otto Wallin had taken complete control of it um, and, and was beating up Travis Kaufman in the fourth and fifth rounds of that fight. So, um, so, but yeah, I mean, Waleen did what he needed to do, uh, would like to get in there by the end of the year. I don't know if that's realistic based on all the other guys who have, you know, networks have contractual obligations to, but, um, but it was good for him to get in there and get a win against a guy who, who has shown himself well against like decent heavyweights. Um, but he's going to step it up against a better opponent, I would think next time. And then we'll really get a better idea. I think of where Otto Waleen is. Yeah. yeah. Taking a step back, um, I think when ESPN came out of the gates with their fights 
in the bubble, there was a lot of excitement, the sense that, you know, boxing was coming back, providing live entertainment before a lot of other sports and that the sport would, would benefit from that, you know, maybe pick up some extra fans. But I think it's fair to say that whether it's Showtime, whether it's ESPN, whether it's Fox, viewing figures for live boxing so far post-COVID haven't been great. And, and I'm wondering if, if you've talked to a lot of broadcasters or promoters and if, if they're concerned at all at the moment that in addition to not getting gate receipts, they're maybe not getting great figures, or are they confident that, you know, they just haven't had the big fighters back yet? And once the big guns come back, everything should start falling into place. There, there is some concern among some people. I, I, <laughs> I had a conversation with Bob Aram on Friday. Uh, it was about a 30-minute conversation. And during the course of it, I would say we got into what you could call a minor argument about um, – the state of ratings with Bob <laughs> and, and with Bob, you never take anything too seriously. Right. And then you just kind of go back to talking about what you were talking about. And uh, he calls you a schmuck or something <laughs> to that, to that, uh, you know, in that vein. But, um, but what Bob was saying was that he thinks that it, the, uh, the low ratings were exaggerated because ratings for everything are low in the summer uh, they had no live programming on ESPN, which to some degree is true. The ratings obviously across all television platforms are, are lower in the summer because people ordinarily are doing many more things than they're doing now. Now, the flip side, of course, is we're in the middle of a pandemic. So theoretically, more people are home watching television and might just stumble on boxing, even if they're not mm. real boxing fans. But uh, so there is some concern there. Uh, but, you know, the ESPN shows were shown on Tuesdays and Thursday nights, primarily uh, not a normal night for boxing. And frankly, the matchups were not great. I mean, some of them were better than others, but they were not the best that they could provide. Uh, I think we'll get a real gauge of where boxing is as a television product when Tiafimo Lopez and Vasily Lomachenko fight on ESPN. It's the best fight that has been on either uh, free TV or basic cable in, in quite some time. And we'll see what kind of drawing power boxing actually has when you put a fight of that magnitude uh, on on basic cable and and available to eighty three or eighty four million uh, basic cable subscribers. So, uh, but to answer your question though, Kieran, I, I you know it has to be a concern because the Fox ratings uh, for the first Fox show on August eighth were were the best ratings that have been produced since June 9th since boxing came back to television, but were down roughly five hundred thousand ish uh, from the last Fox broadcast on March seventh. And were the lowest uh, for a Fox broadcast since Al Heyman made a deal with Fox two years ago. Since they stopped, you know, he stopped buying time and was paid license fees for for his product on Fox. So it was the lowest. It wasn't the lowest by a lot, but it was the lowest. Um, I know Thomas Delorme and Jamal James are not household names by any stretch. The fight was pretty entertaining, um, but it is a concern. I mean, Showtime's ratings were were not good uh, for the first. Uh, telecast on August 1st to be expected to some degree because, you know, even some hardcore boxing fans are not all that familiar with Angelo Leo and certainly not with Tremaine Williams right. who replaced Stephen Fulton in the main event. So, um, so I think there is concern, but I wouldn't say there's panic at this point because I think we need to see more in the long term what the ratings are for better fights on Fox ESPN showtime. Sort of related to all of that, there has been lots of speculation, at least, about DAZN specifically. And, you know, they adopted this model. They decided that to break in, they had to pay massively, way above what were going rates. Now they're in the situation where they're locked in, it seems, to a lot of very expensive contracts. And they've got fighters expecting a lot of money. Um, and they're expecting people to subscribe to watch sports that haven't been on for months. Um, right. Is your sense that, you know, from talking to people in the industry, that there's a sense that their model is viable? Are you getting a sense of any panic from the zone or any sharks circling in the water from everybody else? I don't know that there's panic from the DAZN people, but they are definitely going about their business in a very different way than mm. they did before the pandemic started. Right. Frankly, they made a lot of bad deals. Now, mm. they were in a position where they had to make a splash immediately and they're, you know, thrusting themselves into this market that they didn't exist in before. So, I, so they overspent, but they overspent so much on so many different people that they now find themselves in a position where they, they're just not, they don't want to, I don't know if they're going to or not, but they don't want to fulfill those obligations. 
Now, those could cause legal problems for them down the road. But I don't even mean they don't want to fulfill those obligations to Demetrius Andrade or Tevin Farmer or people on the lower, you know, world champions, but people, Tevin Farmer is an ex-champion, but, but people on the lower level, they don't want to fulfill those obligations to Canelo Alvarez either. And they're at an impasse right now where they, they don't want to pay the $40 million that they had agreed to pay for his fights. And they pay Canelo out of that money. They pay Golden Boy out of that money and they pay the opponents out of that that total package that the zone provides. Now the zone and John, from what I've been led to believe, John Skipper is not as involved in these discussions as they had previously been. Um, they're taking a hard line stance with golden boy promotions and Canelo Alvarez. And they're basically telling him, this is what we're giving you to make a Callum Smith fight or, you know, fill in the blank, whichever fighter they, they that they will try to fight. They would prefer Callum Smith, but uh, they're giving them less money. And it's less money than the less money that had been reported before from what I've been led to believe. So uh, Canelo Alvarez is not happy at all. Golden Boy Promotions, the people there, Oscar De La Hoya, Eric Gomez, and those guys are not happy. The DAZN people aren't happy. So none of them are happy. And they're at a standstill right now as to, one, who Canelo Alvarez is going to fight next, two, how much he's going to be paid for that fight, three, when he's going to fight, and at this point, if he's going to fight, because he's certainly not fighting September 12th, as we're, we're here August 16th, that clearly is not going to happen. Um, there's no real significance to him fighting on September, on September 12th this year, you know, around Mexican Independence Day weekend, because fans cannot attend the fight. So that really doesn't matter from that standpoint, I don't think. And he fought November 2nd last year. Um, but I'm starting to get the feeling uh, from what I've been told over the last few days, they might not fight in October. And if he doesn't fight in November, so be it. And then you're getting into December where it's getting close to Christmas and there's supposed to be a Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder pay-per-view fight, which I'm not real sure that's going to happen December 19th either, but um, it's a problem, I guess. Mm. To sum it all up, it's a problem (laughs) and and it is not going away. Well, to to follow up on on the the subject of Canelo. So yeah, we obviously, we don't know quite when and against who and, and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, what's the level of strain between him and golden boy right now? Because they, you know, there's been a lot of clashes going on between Canelo and Oscar over the last several months. Um, do you, do you sense that he's going to stay with golden boy despite them not getting along well? And um, just in terms of whenever he does fight, is it viable to have a, a Canelo fight without crowds, given the huge purses that he's guaranteed is, is that, one of the things holding all this up that, that, that they really want to find a way to have him fight with crowds. Yeah, Eric, that's a great question because I think from golden boys perspective, that's one of their main revenue streams. That's how they're going to make more money off of Canelo's fights. And it's just not possible now. It might not be possible until, I don't know, January, February, or how could anyone say with any certainty, of course, but right. um, the, the relationship between Canelo Alvarez and golden boy promotions is not great, but I think, there's more of a fracture in the relationship now between golden boy and Canelo on the same side against the zone. I think that's where the problem lies more so now. I mean, Canelo and golden boy will coexist whether they like it or not, because they have contracts uh, or whether Canelo likes it or not, because he has a contract and he's they're committed to each other. Um, And I don't think there's any way that he can get out of that because I don't think this is really golden boy, not wanting him to pay what he's supposed to be be paid. It's more DAZN doesn't want to pay all of them what they're supposed to be paid. So I see it from both sides in the sense that DAZN is trying to say, hey, we're trying to recalibrate what we're doing here because there's less money available uh, post-pandemic. And we're still in the pandemic, of course, but right. post-boxing pandemic, I guess. But or, um, but I don't, th- I don't think that matters to Canelo Alvarez. He says, you owe me X. You signed a contract for X. It doesn't say in my contract that if a pandemic, you know, ruins the economy that you're going to pay me <laughs> something else. And if I'm him, I completely understand it from that perspective because while he's been a top fighter at the top level and, and a, and a, you know, an elite earner for a long time, it's going to come to an end sooner or later. So you want to get what you're contractually, uh, you know, supposed to get out of it. So I completely understand it from his perspective, from the zones perspective, they've made mistakes and I think they've realized they've made some of those financial mistakes and they're trying to correct that. now the problem is they've made so many of them that it's going to be hard to, uh, to turn back in some instances, particularly with Canelo. Mm. 
I mean, mm. it's, it's, it's really a upstart streaming service business 101. When you're signing a $300 million plus contract, you include pandemic insurance. Exactly. Come on, <laughs> exactly. I, I mean, well, let's not even get into the $365 million contract right. because you lose a couple fights. You're not getting 365 million, but right. uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Apart from very obviously not ever wanting to face Canelo Alvarez inside a ring, I, he's the kind of guy that I would not want to be on the wrong side of a, like a business deal with either. Like, yeah. uh, he and his team are very focused on doing what's right for them and getting the most out of it. And I, I don't mm-hmm. see them being the kind of guys who are going to be like, yeah, you know what, let's just cut you some slack. Right. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, Karen, because I was told in the beginning that he was willing to work with them a little bit, you know, like take a little bit of a haircut, so to speak to try to make things work. And, you know, but I think some of the opponents that they wanted to fight were right. not palatable for the zone people. They they're like, no, you're not fighting Anthony Durrell and you're not fighting Toriano Johnson or, uh, you know, some of the other guys, Jason Quigley, some exactly, of the other guys yeah. that they brought up. I mean, and I understand that that from the zone's perspective, you're not going to pay for a premium product and, and pay over $30 million and get that type of fight because it's just not going to generate subscriptions that you need to make your subscription service sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to circle back to another fight that you mentioned earlier, which is uh, Vasily Lomachenko and Teofimo Lopez. Um, are you a little surprised? Obviously there've been lots of talk. We all knew that it was, that it was in fairly advanced stages, but is this one that you were a little surprised to see get over the line without crowds? You know, we talked about how, you know, important it is to try to get that extra income from crowds given at least within boxing what it means, were you surprised that that got done? And how much of a threat do you think Teofimo Lopez is to, to Vasily Lomachenko, especially at 135? Well, to, to answer your uh, last question there, I think Teofimo Lopez is a real threat to Lomachenko because he's a huge puncher. He's not a one-trick pony. A lot of people are saying, oh, well, you know, like last night people were saying about Romero that he was exposed. Teofimo Lopez clearly is on a much, much different level than a fighter like Rolando Romero. Um, he's a huge puncher. He's he's an incredibly confident kid. Um, and Lomachenko is a small lightweight, yep. you know, and, and while Jorge Linares is a dynamic offensive fighter, uh, that fight was very close and, and he's not big for the weight. Lopez will be much bigger than him. Now, Lomachenko is more skillful. You know, he's got a lot more experience overall than Tiafimo Lopez has. So I would favor him going into the fight, but I would not be surprised if Teofimo Lopez caught him with the type of shot that ended that fight. That's, I think, what makes it such a fascinating fight. Uh, both guys are, you know, have huge egos and think that there's no way that they can lose. Uh, it, it, it's a fight that Top Rank has been building for three years or so, you know, as they built Lopez here. Um, so, so I'm really looking forward to the fight. But uh, I, I think I'm not surprised that it's happening um, without a crowd, because I think they just got to the point where they knew they could not continue putting on uh, lower level fights. They had to put on a big fight at some point. And this was the type of fight that would have generated money at the gate, but not the kind of money that Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder three would generate. Of course, they, they did about $17 million at the gate for their rematch. Bob Aramid told me he expected to do, if Lomachenko Lopez had happened at Madison Square Garden May 30th, which was the original plan, he said that he figured the, the overall gate receipts would be somewhere between one and $2 million, which is a lot of money. Um, but something that you can make up for in some ways, if ESPN pays a larger license fee, which is ultimately what happened here, because I think once the college football conferences or some of the college football conferences started canceling their seasons or postponing their seasons, it made it more likely that this fight was going to happen because ESPN has programming holes on Saturday nights all of a sudden And then that's how they came, you know, then they came, decided to pay the extra money because really guys, I mean, you know, a fight of that magnitude falling apart over three or $400,000 is extremely uncommon. Um, So in that respect, I I wasn't surprised that it came together. Um, And they really need to put on a look credit to all those guys involved. The fact that this fight is on ESPN and it's, while it's not free TV necessarily, it's about as close as you can get. And it's the best fight that they've put on by a long shot since this deal was uh, put together between ESPN and top rank uh, three years ago or so. Yeah, sure. 
All right, well, last topic for you here, Keith. Uh, in contrast with the big fight on almost free ESPN, uh, there are several pay-per-views lined up for September, October, and November. Uh, you mentioned that Showtime has the Charlo Brothers pay-per-view double feature September 26th, uh, as well as Gervonta Davis, Leo Santa Cruz, October 24th. It appears Errol Spence and Danny Garcia will meet on Fox pay-per-view on November 21st. Uh, and now the Mike Tyson, Roy Jones exhibition, which had been slated for September 12th, is apparently moving to just a week after Spence Garcia, November 28th. Uh, particularly in this difficult economy, do you expect those pay-per-views to cannibalize each other in terms of buys? And, and which one do you see emerging on top? And, and also, one more question, how angry are casual fans going to be when they buy Tyson Jones only to discover what an exhibition boxing match looks like? <laughs> Well, there's a lot to unpack there, guys. Um, the, 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 the one thing that the one positive thing that they did in putting the Charlo fights on pay-per-view is obviously putting them together, packaging them together and putting on a decent undercard where you have six fights all together, all for one price. They'll do three fights starting at 7 PM Eastern time, take a little break and then do three other fights. So you are getting some value for your money in that one. I think they're they're all happy and fortunate to some degree that the Tyson Jones thing is not happening September 12th because I do think some people, you know, whatever we might think of it, some people would have bought it and maybe some of those people two weeks later would not have bought the Charlo's pay-per-view even though it's much more worthwhile. Uh, so I think moving that back to November 28th or never, to be honest. I mean, right. who knows <laughs> if it's ever going yeah. to happen, but... Uh, but just kind of removing that from the equation of the real pay-per-views is helpful to everyone involved. Um, I would say, you know, people love Gervonta Davis. I mean, he does good ratings on Showtime. I, I know that he's a big favorite against uh, Leo Santa Cruz, but there's this obvious uh, problem here that he can't make weight no matter which weight he fights at. So if he has to come in at 130, for all I know, he might weigh in at 133. I mean, I don't think any of us could say with any certainty what's going to happen on October 23rd. But um, that, I, I think the Spence Garcia fight will do the, the most amount of buys. Uh, you know, people want to see what Spence is now after the, you know, post accident, what's left of him. Uh, people who train with him, his own trainer, Spence himself, have said he's perfectly fine, but I don't think we'll really know that until we see him in the ring, particularly with a, a capable opponent like Danny Garcia, who can punch. And while he would be a, a, a significant underdog against Spence under normal circumstances, these aren't normal circumstances for Spence because he won't have fought for 13 months. And of course, uh, you know, got banged up in that accident pretty good. Uh, so I think that fight probably will do the best pay-per-view uh, buy rate. I'm really interested to see what the Charlos fight does because they too are polarizing guys. They're both in fights that they could lose. And, and you have a decent undercard where, you know, they're in different weight classes and everything, but you got some super bantamweight fights on there, some bantamweight fights. Uh, so you're getting some value for your money. So if that one winds up being $75 in HD, at least you're getting some value and you're getting probably about six hours worth of fights on that night. Right. So I think from a value perspective, that's, that's probably the one. Uh, but the Spence Garcia is very intriguing because of what I mentioned about Spence and, and they think Gervonta Davis and, and Leonard Ellerby and Floyd Mayweather have said this all along. They think he's going to be a bonafide pay-per-view star. We're about to find out one way or the other, um, even in a fight where he's a bit, pretty big favorite. But I don't, there are people now starting to think that Leo Santa Cruz has a chance because Davis has to struggle so much to make weight. I, I don't see it. I, I didn't think Leo Santa Cruz looked particularly good against Miguel Flores. Now, sometimes the guys fight up and down to levels of competition, of course, but I don't see that as all that competitive of a fight. I, I, I would think Gervonta Davis would, would beat up Leo Santa Cruz as nice of a guy as Leo is. I, I don't give him much of a chance in that fight. But that'll really test whether Gervonta Davis is the next uh, pay-per-view star, as Floyd Mayweather and Leonard Ellaby have been saying all along. Yeah. All right, Keith. Hey, listen, man, we really appreciate you joining us and, and giving us some time. Miss seeing you ringside. Um, Maybe we'll see you at the pay-per-view. Who the heck knows? Yeah, uh, that's, that's who true. Knows we'll, be what in the the future <laughs> we'll be in the bubble together, knocking on right. hotel rooms, and we can't leave. We're banned from walking outside. But, uh, <laughs> but thanks for having me, guys. It was a pleasure, and I hope to see you guys soon, all right? You bet. Take care, thanks. thanks a lot.
Thanks very much again to our good friend Keith Eidick there. Uh, really good to talk to him and I uh, really appreciated his insight. Um, all right, let's look at what else we have. We uh, The Showtime card that we talked about was obviously the big one this past weekend, but uh, there was plenty of other boxing action in the US and elsewhere as well. Uh, in London, Michael Conlon scored a 10th round stoppage over Sufyan Takusht to move to 14-0 with eight KOs. Gosh, 14-0 already. How did that happen so quick? Um, and former 122 and 126 pound title holder Carl Frampton stopped late replacement Darren Trainer in the seventh round of a lightweight contest, one of the more unusual looking stoppages you'll ever see, um, to 28 and 2 with 16 KOs, having dropped Trainer with a body shot in the sixth round. He hit him in the body again in the seventh, and Trainer just said, Yeah, I'm done with this. And walks away. It was the, um, the opposite of the delayed reaction, it was the pre reaction <laughs> reaction. Right. Yeah. That's right. Um, the big news, though, was in the streets of Tulsa, Oklahoma, where the 11 year reign and undefeated record of Cecilia Brekus came to an end against Jessica McCaskill, who scored a majority decision win to move to nine and two and walk off with Brekus's abundant collection of welterweight belts. Uh, Brekus, extremely classy in defeat, suggested she may now retire with a record of 36 and one. Uh, Eric, any thoughts on all the above? Yeah, they're all worth commenting on. So I'll uh, try and do some some quick hits, a uh, quick thought on each. Uh, Conlon, I was impressed with two things that he forced the finish in a fight that looked like it was headed for the cards and that he lost points for low blows and was in danger of getting DQ'd and had the discipline to stop going to the body. That's not easy to do. You know, your instinct is to mix in body shots. He kept a cool head in there and executed. Uh, The Frampton fight, you know, was a replacement opponent, as you said, not a very good opponent, not a very encouraging performance. I think he just made himself the underdog if a Jamel Herring fight gets finalized. Um, McCaskill versus Brakus. Boy, am I glad I snuck in a quick mention last week that McCaskill isn't bad. And if Brakus gets old and upset as possible, I didn't pick the upset. Um, On Brian Campbell and Rafe Bartholomew's podcast, one of them actually called the upset. I think it was Rafe, but I don't remember for sure. Uh, But anyway, McCaskill fought very well. The fight could have gone either way. The decision went her way, and Cecilia, yeah, she's not quite what she once was. Uh, you know, she's 38. I remember we in- we interviewed her in person. Uh, remember those mm-hmm. in person mm-hmm. interviews? Uh, those were the days. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I think she was 35 or 36 at the time, and I asked her about feeling her age, and she said she was. She said at the time she couldn't do as much road work anymore, and so forth. So, yeah, she's getting up there in boxing years. She's still very good. Uh, If she doesn't retire, I could absolutely see her getting revenge in a rematch. But she would seem to be nearing the end. And if so, Canastota can clear out space for her. Surely, given the current induction process, she is a future Hall of Famer. Um, One last fight that I want to comment on quickly that you didn't mention there on the McCaskill-Brakus undercard. Uzbek prospect Ismail Madrimov scored a points win over Eric Walker, a skilled fighter who I knew would be a tough out after seeing him on the most recent season of The Contender. In the ninth round, we saw as bad a blown call as you'll see in boxing. Ref Gary Ritter ruled no knockdown when Madrimov knocked Walker out with a clean left hook. Imagine, the year is 1971. Ali and Frazier are meeting in the fight of the century— it's round 15. The drama is reaching a crescendo when Frazier floors Ali with one of the greatest left hooks ever thrown, and the ref calls it a slip and gives Ali five minutes to recover. <laughs> That's almost how bad this was here. But at least Madrimov still got the win, so we can be thankful for that. Yeah, but poor old Walker got three more rounds of punishment after being knocked out. True. Um, yeah. I mean, that was, you know, one of the things you know as a referee that's super super important is you've got to be able to judge body language and 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 i think he said that yeah there was a punch um but that it was you know the the shoulder from madrimov that actually knocked walker over but come on man you've got to see when when walker's not getting up right and and he clearly looks knocked out not oh my god he shoulder barged me you, you've you've got to be able to figure out what's going on there. And Walker took a lot of punishment in those final few rounds that he did not need to take. Um, uh, that was that was a bad bad call indeed. And, and as for Cecilia, yeah, look, like you said, uh, very very classy, very gracious. Um, you know, she honestly she looked like she wanted to go home um, because of COVID. 
and being unable to like leave the United States. Uh, she's been living in Big Bear in the apartment above the gym, mm. away from friends and family for six months. Uh, then you've got the you know the week under lockdown in Tulsa, and she's 38. And no wonder that she certainly gave the impression at that moment of, you know, if I walk away, I know it's in good hands of people like Jessica McCaskill. Um, I'm sure right now that's probably all she does want to do. Um, whether she'll come back again or not, I don't, I don't know. But I thought it was a very gracious, gracious uh, uh, speech that, you know, or interview that she gave at the end. Um, and what a great story for Jessica McCaskill yeah. as well. I mean, what a, what a great story. Yeah. Yeah, there was a, a lot of interesting action going on the, this past weekend. And uh, this coming Saturday, August 22nd, we have some more action uh, with Matchroom once again front and center. Uh, the fourth and final installment of the Matchroom Fight Camp in England, the the best of their cards on paper, uh, will stream on zone here in the U.S. And it is headlined by the rematch between Katie Taylor and Delphine Persoon and heavyweight action between Dillian White and Alexander Povetkin. Uh, the Bubble is back on ESPN. Uh, Keith mentioned this fight, light heavyweights uh, later Alvarez and Joe Smith Jr. squaring off. And on Fox, Sean Porter takes on Sebastian Formella in an eliminator for a couple of alphabet belts at welterweight, while the co-main sees Showbox alums Sebastian Fundora and Nathaniel Gallimore face off. Kieran, any one of those fights to which you're particularly looking forward? So, I mean, different toward the Fox card, although Sean Porter is always good value, and it will be good to see, as you mentioned, a pair of Showbox alumni go up against each other. But the others all, I'm super interested in all the others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Alvarez Smith is an excellent like, heavyweight bow. Uh, you'd favor Alvarez, I think, because I think he has more, uh, uh, to use the Roy Jones again, I think I think he's got more in, more in the proverbial toolbox. But uh, that's very close to a 50-50 fight. And, and I think the two main bouts on the zone, the two uh, main matchroom fights are also very close to 50-50 fights. Uh, I, I thought Taylor was a little fortunate to get the win against Persone last time. It wasn't a robbery, but it was a very, very close fight that I thought could have gone either way. It looked to me as if, you know, Persone maybe su- surprised her a little bit, had her number a little bit. Um, I might actually make her, Delphine Persone, the slight favorite going into the rematch. But I'm impressed that Taylor sought her out for that rematch when her fight with uh, Serrano fell through. Um, and as for the main event... Man, Povetkin's just still going after all these years. And, and, you know, his career hasn't quite panned out the way I thought it would when he dominated Chris Bird low 13 years ago now. Um, it's still been a really, really solid career. He's still incredibly dangerous. Uh, and so indeed is Dylan White. Um, it's a risk for White, given that he's striving to enforce a mandatory against Tyson Fury in the midst of, you know, Fury's back and forth with Anthony Joshua and Deontay Wilder. But... By the same token, if he defeats if he defeats Povetkin, he strengthens his hand theoretically, I think, considerably in terms of making sure that he deserves to be mentioned as part of that round robin. I I have a very hard time calling the winner of that fight, but that's another one I'm looking forward to. That's that's some good action we have going on next weekend. Yeah, it sounds like this might be a good week for you to uh, get involved in uh, becoming a degenerate boxing better like uh, like I am, uh, because uh, I, I've looked up the odds on these fights. I haven't placed any bets myself, but uh, Pursun and Povetkin are both somewhere in the two and a half to three to one underdog range. So if you mm. if you have some belief in one or both of them, uh, it's a pretty good number. Yeah, yeah, Pursun especially, I think, mm-hmm. but. All right. Uh, there's news of a couple of fights that have been all but squared away for the coming weeks. Um, we already talked with Keith a little bit about uh, Tyson Jones and about Lomachenko Lopez, uh, which is apparently set to happen October 17th. Um, but the long-running saga of Ryan Garcia and Luke Campbell appears to be nearing a conclusion. A purse bid was postponed last week with the two sides close to agreement for a fight in mid to late November, either in these here United States or in the United Kingdom. Uh Garcia says he thinks the fight will be, quote, easy for him. Uh, I doubt you agree with that. Uh, but would you make him the favorite against the veteran who showed against Vasily Lomachenko that he's not necessarily someone to be taken lightly? Yeah, I think I would, but I certainly don't think it's an easy win for King Rai. You're right, you're right about uh, my feelings on that. But Campbell is a bit of a nearly man, as the Brits yeah. might call him. I, I recall seeing that term in boxing news many years ago, and it stuck with me. I'd never heard it before. A nearly man. He's a good fighter who elevates to be competitive with top opposition, but not quite enough to win. Um, I've been impressed with Garcia of late, particularly with his punching power. And so... 
while he hasn't fought anyone on Campbell's level yet, and he might well have some deficiencies exposed in this fight, I'd certainly make Garcia the favorite here. Feels like it's headed toward a, a hard-earned win for the blue chip prospect, uh, who, yes, I have come to believe he is blue chip after having my doubts for a while there. Um and we, you mentioned Jamel Herring earlier in the, you know, in the context of a possible fight with Carl Frampton. Uh, I think it is now the fourth, might be the fourth time of asking. It's certainly the third time of asking. Mm-hmm. He and Jonathan Akendo are hoping to finally square off on September 5th. But given the snake bit nature of the matchup so far, uh, what odds would you offer on this finally going ahead now? I think they should nickname him Jamel Red Herring, because every uh, time a fight is scheduled, it turns out to be a misdirect. Uh, you can steal that one for the broadcast, Kriegel. You can have it for free. Uh, <laughs> I I don't know. The fight might happen. It, it might not. Uh, it seems to be all lined up. But uh, I'll just say that if it falls out for whatever reason, I think at this point, skip the tune-up. Go ahead and sign Herring Frampton. There you go. Uh, And finally, some news from our old employer, uh, and let's file this one under, we were lucky to get out when we did. Uh, The website Awful Announcing reported last week that Peter Nelson will be leaving his position as head of HBO Sports amid some internal restructuring, which essentially amounts to the end of HBO Sports as a division, two years after the live boxing program went away. Since HBO Boxing ended, HBO Sports has basically consisted of Hard Knocks, Real Sports with Brian Gumble, and Occasional Documentaries. Uh, I mean, they don't even have a boxing podcast. What kind of premium cable exactly. sports division is that? Right. Uh, anyway, Kieran, does this news about Peter Nelson and HBO surprise you? And do you have any more information on what's going on at our former network? Yeah, I mean, it was it was Peter leaving his job that got the news. But what's happened here is it's the end of HBO Sports, um, which, you know, really died with the last live fight that it aired a little under two years ago, which mm-hmm. featured, of course, the aforementioned Cecilia Brakus. Right. Um, but as you mentioned, it staggered on with Hard Knocks and Real Sports. What's happening now is a few producers and, and Real Sports are moving from HBO Sports to HBO Documentaries. Um, and as far as I'm aware, all the remaining associate producers and videographers, um, including the last remaining members of our old digital team, have, have been laid off. Uh, the once proud HBO Sports is done. Um, I think it's a damn shame, not just because our friends have lost their jobs, but because a proud franchise was botched appallingly. Um, and led to this point. I don't know. I'm still not entirely sure whether it was negligent homicide or an intentional slow burn assassination. Right. Um, but I think to some extent it's a little from column A and a little from column B. Either way, it did not have to happen. Uh, you only have to look at our present employers to see that it's still possible to be a premium cable network and be invested in sports and to do good sports stuff. Um, I would never have imagined five years ago when you and I started our podcast there that uh or six years ago now i guess yeah Yeah, that its commitment that network's commitment to sports programming would just fall off a cliff like that um what a damn shame that's all i got to say about that yeah no i mean it it certainly is sad and uh i think even our present employers would look at it and uh and and say boy that's really that's really sad what what happened there yeah well the usual uplifting finish to another (laughs) no no nobody died and yet here we are somehow managing to end the show on a uh, on a depressing note yeah yeah that's one thing you can always rely on us on to bring you down (laughs) in these difficult times um that will do it you'll be pleased to hear for this for this edition of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney we will be back next week with more news reviews previews and maybe a joke or two to make up this um until then thanks for listening be safe be kind 